Our scripture reading for this morning will come from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. 1 Peter, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Are you getting taller, stronger, faster? Are you also getting smarter and more mature? Now, some of you kind of have a, a grimace on your face. You say, those are days gone by <laughs> when I was younger. I'm not getting taller, stronger, or faster. Maybe... I'm getting smarter. I hope I'm getting more mature. But I'm sure your mother would agree that you're getting better looking. Transitions. This morning we want to look at early transitions since Peter in his example talks about being like newborn babies. A transition is passage from one state or stage or place to another. Change. And development, an evolution in form or style. How sad it is when one doesn't progress normally, uh, either due to some kind of physical defect or mental one, when somebody's body or mind does not transition to maturity. God wants us to think of our spiritual self as a body that needs to grow and to mature. Now, you can enter into your spiritual walk with God at a relatively young age, once you come to the age of accountability and understand the gospel, or it can be delayed until you are middle-aged, even much older. But regardless of what earthly age you become a Christian, at that point you are now a babe in Christ. And you need to grow. You need to mature. Look again at verse 2. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now that you are saved, you are under obligation to mature. And as Peter writes this letter and emphasizes this point, He's wanting the readers of what we uh, looked at in the first part of studying the book of 1 Peter, our modern Turkey. He wants his readers to understand that they now fall under God's expectations for spiritual growth. And then he gives the key for that growth. Like newborn babies, if you've tasted salvation, long for the pure spiritual, pure milk of the Word. 
I have written out on the marquee, knowledge of God's word is directly related to spiritual growth. Now, that doesn't mean because you know the Bible inside and out, there are some who say that Hitler knew the New Testament by heart. Certainly, it didn't change him. It doesn't mean that simply because you know it, you're going to grow. But you can't grow as you should if you don't know the Word. Let me read it again. Knowledge of God's Word is directly related to spiritual growth. That's why fathers are commissioned in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 to bring them up, their children, bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Do we miss the power of God's Word for transformation, for making transition? I'm afraid that the world certainly discounts it, but too often, perhaps even we as children of God don't realize how much we need to be in God's Word, studying it. Turn with me to hymn number 741. 741. treasure thou art mine mine to tell me whence I came mine to teach me which I am mine to chide me when I roll mine to show a Savior's love mine thou art to guide and guard, mine to punish or reward, mine to comfort in distress, suffering in this wilderness, mine to show by living faith, man can triumph over death, mine to tell of joys to come, and the rebel sinner's doom. O thou holy book divine, a precious treasure, thou art mine. We do have a precious treasure in our possession, don't we? The Word of God. <laughs> we just don't comprehend what a blessing that is to have that accessible to us at all times. Not stored for us somewhere else, getting to see it once a week, but having it available to study, to meditate upon, to look at. Visualize how quickly a newborn baby grows when it is fed well. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, there's a little bit of a relapse once the baby is born, maybe a, a week or so when their weight by an ounce or two goes the wrong direction. But then it's, it's like the starter's whistle has blown and they're off to the races. Peter has already said in verse 1 of Second Peter chapter 2, that there are things that can't be a part of 
our attitudes or character once we become Christians. Look again at verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. There's an old self that once we taste the wonders of salvation that has to be left behind. And that old self, uh, we had a children's song that uh, we learned, mom taught us, and it went like this. Root them out. Get them gone, all the little bunnies in the field of corn. Envy, jealousy, malice, and pride. These must never in my heart abide. Into my heart, into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus Come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. You have to clean the room. Oh, how many times did you hear that growing up? Go clean your room. You have to clean your heart in order for Jesus to be able to reside there. Root them out. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. It's basically a description of a heart change from selfishness where you take offense at other people to outreach. Peter has already said in chapter 1 that we have been saved for a reason. Look at verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. This is why you were redeemed, to remove the selfishness and to replace it instead with outreach, with love for others in the Lord. That's becoming like Christ, isn't it? Loving like he did. Love fervently one another from the heart. What's the definition of love? Agape love, it's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's an action. Love is doing what is best for another, regardless of the cost or how you're treated in return. And that is the description of our Heavenly Father, isn't it? In doing so, in removing that which is selfish within us, root them out, get them gone, all the little bunnies in the field of corn, envy, jealousy, malice, and pride, and then inviting Jesus to come into our heart to stay, we become like our Father. In chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Transition. Early transition. Understanding whose we are and who we are supposed to look like. Do not behave like your old self. 
Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We are tools in God's mechanical toolbox. He is to be able to use us to accomplish His will, working through us. That's why He says in verse 16 of chapter 1, Be holy as I am holy. Transitioning from our former self, our former selfish self, to loving like God loves. This is another important passage, I think, another of Paul's letters. This is from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. And notice the transition, the transformation that takes place, starting with verse 17 of Ephesians 4. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have, been taught by him. Just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Leave behind a life of futility, ignorance, hardness, darkness, callousness, a life of sensuality and impurity and greed. That's no longer you if you have heard of Christ and learned or been taught by Him. You have been given a renewal. Your mind sees things differently, no longer being deceived by the ways of Satan, following your own lusts. When we do what we think and ignore what God says, we get ourselves into major trouble. And it turns us even against one another. We lose relationship first with God, and then we lose focus on how we are to be forgiving of each other. As God's children, yes, we have been forgiven in our salvation, but now we are to have a forgiving spirit. That's the way our Father would have us to look like Him. But it's a continual process, isn't it? It's not something that happens overnight, which is the reason for Peter's letter as he writes to these churches that are scattered about the churches of dispersion. 
Here we are, but straying pilgrims. And Peter wants them to be grounded wherever they are and however many times they have to move around. God's word is an anchor for the soul. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, nobody's perfect. This process is one that is always going to be ours as long as we live. Here is an apostle describing himself. And this is toward the end of his ministry. This is one of his prison epistles. Uh, It's not long before Paul, according to church history, is martyred. And he he pens this letter from Rome. This is Philippians 3, beginning with verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard in which we have obtained. Now, when Paul says, I haven't gotten there yet, he doesn't mean that he's not forgiven. He has received salvation. And in that sense, he is perfect. And he writes this letter to all those who have been saved. But he says, you can't view yourself as not in need of improvement. As long as we live this process of transitioning to becoming like Christ continues. We can never sit back and say, okay... I'm smart enough, I'm strong enough, I'm pure enough. No, Satan still walks this earth, doesn't he? And he is still after us. Even in the perfect garden where sin had not yet been introduced, Satan found a way. Paul understood that he had to set himself aside. In Galatians 2 and verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Continual process of dying to self, even pictured here as crucifying one's self with Christ. A companion of Paul, Epaphras, prayed for his brethren as he ministered to Paul. In Colossians 4 and verse 12, Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. I don't know if Epaphras told him what he was praying for or if Paul overheard him praying or if in their dual prayers together, which is what I imagine it to be, he heard Epaphras pray for those who were still back home. What was he praying for? That they might stand perfect 
and fully assured. Lord, help them to be faithful and fully committed to you. Why would you have to pray that prayer? Because Satan is going to try and tempt you away. He's going to try to place within your heart that which would eat the crop of righteousness, the little bunnies in the field of corn. We must root them out. We must ever be on guard because sin is sin. To walk in unrighteousness is to go against what God's word teaches us. Remember last week's marquee, ungodliness defined? Condoning what God condemns. And then we had for a passage to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 9 and going through verse 11. And he lists there all the deeds of unrighteousness that our world is beginning to accept, if not already is promoting adultery and fornication and homosexuality and drunkenness and covetousness, thievery. It's sad, isn't it? But he concludes that short passage there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 with, But such were some of you. Corinthians, you once were involved in all of those activities, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You have received salvation. Isn't it amazing how similar the focus is of Peter's writings along with Paul? Just a little different take on them. Why is that? Because it's true and because they're both led by the Holy Spirit inspired by him. If we fail to mature in Christ, if we return to sin, the Hebrew writer warns us. This is from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. We've ceased to be obedient children, and we have been launched into the category of an adversary to be defeated. The fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. What is it that has caused us to fall from God's grace? Sinning willfully. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, those must be driven from our heart. It'll be a process that we will fight lifelong. No one is exempt. By way of closing, I want to give you an example of a young man who had high hopes, I think, of being influenced for good and of being of service to two great evangelists. His name was John Mark. And on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, God set them aside from Antioch and said, You are to go. And they went. But we're told in Acts chapter 13 that along with them went John Mark. And they first sail to Cyprus. Beginning with verse 5 of Acts chapter 13. 
And when they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. And it says that John was with them all through the island of Cyprus. But there were some terrifying things that happened along that route of Cyprus. They were opposed by a magician who seemingly had dark powers. Is that what discouraged John Mark? Was it the travels themselves getting further and further away from home? We don't know for sure, but they sail from Cyprus back to the mainland, which is part of modern-day Turkey now on the south end. At Pamphylia, it says, once they reach land, that John Mark turned back. And it's described by Paul as the second missionary journey is about to be taken, and Barnabas wants to bring John Mark along. It's described by Paul as a desertion. Paul did not want to take with them one who had deserted them. Acts chapter 15 and verse 38. Kind of a sad condition for John Mark to find himself in. Barnabas, however, is not willing to give up on John Mark. And that's where Barnabas and the Apostle Paul part ways. Because Barnabas does take John Mark under his wing. Did John Mark need Barnabas in his life? Oh, absolutely. But he also needed Paul. You say, wait, Paul rejected him. Yeah. If we go on sinning willfully after coming to a knowledge of the truth, what was Paul doing? He was disciplining. It's almost like a father and a mother response. Although my mom, I've said that before, I'd rather take my licking from her than from dad, but she still did get out the six-flag paddle. Barnabas is longer suffering, perhaps, is the way to describe it. And John Mark's transition takes place. Even the Apostle Paul recognizes it. Toward the very end of his life, this is from 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Early transitions sometimes are a bit rocky. It's a continual process and will never be perfect, but we must stay on the road. We must continue to walk as Christ would have us to walk. And the example of John Mark is a primary one. Maturing. Growing. Increasing. So much so that by the end of Paul's life, he says, bring John Mark with you. I need him for service. So how are you doing on your own road to maturity? Have you gotten sidetracked? Have you taken a detour? We must remember to whom we belong. Prepare your mind for action. Put on the new self and walk in righteousness and truth. One of the Sweetest passages, I think, of Jesus in his childhood is found in Luke 2, verse 51. Early transitions, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Knowledge of God's word is directly related to spiritual growth.